All right, good evening. How is everyone? Good. Uh, I know for sure that Mike Brewer and Brian Cromer are watching online, so let's give a shout out to the guys. <laughs> I, I was going to say something else, but uh, it, it left me. Uh, also, a couple of changes. You see, we have two sweet new spotlights. Huh? 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 See, you can see me, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Uh, you know, but I had to actually, I had to comb my hair tonight, you know, so that you, and, uh, brought the sanctuary podium in here because there's a sweet new podium in the sanctuary, custom made to my specifications. So didn't cost much, but it's, I think it's beautiful. So if you don't like it, I'm just telling you right now, if you don't like it, tell someone else. Don't tell me. I like it, and uh, I'm, I'm anxious to try that baby out. I, I was looking for a way to improve the messages, and uh, I thought I could study harder, pray for the anointing of the Spirit, or I could just have a new podium built. And so, <laughs> so I'm going to do both, and we'll see how that works. So, uh, we are in Ezekiel tonight. We're continuing our super fast-paced study through the book of Ezekiel. My wife asked me this afternoon how many years she thought I'd be in Ezekiel, and I, I don't know, you know, it's uh, just one of those things. We're not in any hurry to get through these prophetic books. The overall study in Ezekiel we're calling hard to heart because uh, Ezekiel is really bringing the people of God from a hardness of heart to uh, where God says he's planting a new heart, uh, a, f- a heart of flesh within them and bringing them uh, a time of restoration. Uh, Tonight's study in verses 4 through 14, we're calling weird-faced scenario, uh, and you'll see why in a minute. It's often posited by ufologists. You know what a ufologist is? It's a UFOologist. Uh, that's That's what they call themselves, so I'm just, I throw these things out so that you don't feel ignorant out there in the world, you know, when people are saying that they follow the teaching of a certain ufologist, uh, and there's UFOs. Uh, unidentified flying object, and there's USOs, uh, which isn't the thing that goes over to, you know, occupy the troops, but they are unidentified submersible objects, uh, because a lot of people think that the aliens are down in the ocean in submersible. Uh, if you've ever seen them, I'm not recommending it, but if you've ever seen the movie The Abyss, it's about a million-year-old movie. I think they were underwater, right, in some gigantic craft. So, uh, anyway, ufologist. They think that Ezekiel was an ancient man using primitive language to describe his encounter or various encounters with extraterrestrial visitors from another planet. NASA engineer Joseph F. Bloomrich wrote a book titled The Spaceships of Ezekiel. Bloomrich says that the description of the wheel within a wheel in chapter 1 was extraterrestrial, and he goes one step further and claims that it only describes a small part of the craft. According to Bloomrich, the whole chapter was a detailed description of an encounter with a UFO. He even concludes that Ezekiel must have gone aboard the craft and interacted with the commander of the vehicle a number of times. Was Ezekiel a primitive man doing his best to put an alien encounter on papyrus? Well, first of all, he wasn't so ancient. By that I mean he wasn't a caveman who had never seen a wheel before. He had a pretty good grasp of language. He was an intelligent guy. 
But here's the real problem with the alien encounter theory. Ezekiel said in verse 28, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Several times in his book, he indicates that the vision was the Lord. Now, if you want to say that it was really extraterrestrials and that Ezekiel was just doing his best to describe what happened, you're denying the inspiration of Scripture. You're reducing Ezekiel to a man struggling to put his thoughts on papyrus rather than an instrument in the hands of Almighty God. And so the logical argument that if you were a guy in the 6th century B.C. and and aliens did visit the earth in this craft, this is how you would describe it. You know, if I'm not a Christian, I can see that. I can understand that. But as Christians, we say, well, wait a minute. Ezekiel said that it was the Lord. And if the Bible is inspired, then it was the Lord. And, and it, it cancels out that. And, and then we'll see in a minute that the beings that he saw are clearly the cherubim angels that are described elsewhere in Scripture. Now, why is it easier for some people to believe in aliens than in angels? Well, because mankind does not like to retain God in our knowledge. We'd rather believe some fantastic tale than the truth that we were created by and then visited by the loving and merciful and forgiving God of the Bible. Because if there really is a God, then we need to face the fact that we are sinners, that we're in need of His saving, and in our pride, we want instead to go our own way. We'll talk quite a bit about aliens and alien encounters during Ezekiel uh, because the, as we've done it on Sunday morning, we've been talking about it more in our prophecy updates, but it's a phenomenon we need to account for. Uh, just because Ezekiel doesn't see a, a UFO and an extraterrestrial doesn't mean there aren't UFO sightings, and we're, we're going to try and bring those into perspective. And uh, Basically, my basic premise is that they are demonic in nature and that people really have these experiences. They really encounter beings, but they are demons. Now, we met Ezekiel in verses 1, 2, and 3. He'd been taken away from Judah and Jerusalem in the second siege of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The Jews believed that God would shortly deliver them from Babylon and that they would return to life as usual in the Holy Land. Ezekiel would prophesy that their exile would be a long one. He would tell them in words and through dramatizations that Jerusalem and the temple would instead be ruined. And that's the first portion of his book. After Jerusalem fell, he would go on in the second portion of his book to give them prophecies of hope in a return to the land, prophecies that look beyond even our own time to the future rule of Jesus Christ on the earth after his second coming. Now, as we continue in chapter 1, we're going to see Ezekiel's primary vision. I say primary because he will mention it frequently in the book. We'll see it in chapter 10. We'll see it in chapter 11. We'll see it in chapter 43. Each time we see it, we get a little more detail about what the vision means or about what was happening in the vision. We're going to learn in chapter 1, as I indicated, it's a vision of the Lord in His glory. In chapter 10, we see that it portends judgment upon Jerusalem. In chapter 11, we'll see that it portrays the glory of the Lord departing from Israel for a time. And then finally, in chapter 43, we'll see that the vision promises that the glory of the Lord will one day return and it will cover the land of Israel. The vision is recounted in chapter 1 and it's done in three stages. 
In verses 4 through 14, those are our verses tonight, we're going to get kind of an overview or, or an introduction, as it were, as Ezekiel introduces the vision. And then in verses 15 through 21, Ezekiel sees further details and describes what appears to be a heavenly vehicle, a chariot. And then in verses 22 through 28, he sees further details about the heavenly throne and God upon the throne. And so let's take a look in verse 4. Let's start in verse 4. Then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Ezekiel saw a great storm coming upon him, coming upon the land from the north. Now, the storm has at least two meanings. It means judgment was coming upon the Jews from the north. For a time, Israel was a divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And so what we call Israel was divided in half. There was a disagreement and they divided ten tribes to the north two tribes to the south, the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Judah watched as Assyria came from the north and overran the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. Now Babylon would come and ruin the southern kingdom of Judah in similar style. The storm from the north also meant God was coming to them. In Psalm 75, 6 and 7, we read this. The psalmist wrote and said, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Now, commentators say that this word exaltation has to do with help. And so what the psalmist is saying is that God's help comes from not from any direction, and by that it it means not from earth, but it comes from the north, or we might even say from above, uh, you know, as we look up to the north. He was using the Babylonians, God was, to discipline his people, but he was in the storm caring for his people. And so it's a very interesting vision as Ezekiel sees this storm coming, which is clearly, uh, uh, you know, portends the Babylonians destroying them for a time and keeping them captive. But God is in the storm. He is using the storm. He is uh, over the storm, as it were. In verse 28, Ezekiel will mention a rainbow in this storm. The rainbow would remind the Israelites that in his wrath, God remembers mercy. The storm would not destroy them, it would purify them, and then God would restore them. Now, in verse 5, Ezekiel 1, 5, Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings, on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Now, there's really no mystery here. In chapter 10, Ezekiel identifies these living creatures as cherubim. Some say they are a kind of angel, a a division of angels, while others say they are a unique class of created beings. Either way, they are not aliens. They appear regularly in the Scripture. They are uh, God's 
servants and messengers. They are especially associated in the Bible with the presence of God. In the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, cherubim were the angels carved on the cover that sat on top of the mercy seat. So if you've ever seen the Ark of the Covenant, and then on top of it, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant is actually called the mercy seat. It's two pieces. The Ark is a separate piece of furniture, and the lid is the mercy seat. And on that, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, are, are the two uh, cherubim covering their faces, but their wings touching. Uh, and so that was a famous image in the Jewish mind. They were also embroidered on the curtains that surrounded the tabernacle. And then we see them prominently in the revelation of Jesus Christ ministering before the throne of God. When we saw the scene in heaven in the revelation, the cherubim were there described in very similar fashion. And so what's interesting to me about this is that far from being confused or thinking he saw an alien and not knowing how to describe it, Ezekiel and any Jew would have recognized these as cherubim who minister in the presence of Jehovah. This was one of the most common images uh, to represent the presence of God in Jewish society. Ezekiel was not struggling to describe aliens. He was careful to describe the well-known cherubim. Now, their description seems weird to us. And as I was thinking about, you know, all the various interpretations and how to portray it, I, I just thought to myself, I wonder what we look like to them. You know, it's all in the eyes of the beholder. There's a fa- I don't have much time, but I'll sell this story anyway. Uh, there's a famous ancient Twilight Zone episode, some of you might remember, where the whole episode, this woman is bandaged. And you never see anybody but her and her bandages on her face and from behind her bandages. And uh, at the end, they take her bandages off and she's this beautiful woman. Uh, I forget who the actress was, but all the doctors and nurses pull back and they go, oh, oh, and they're screaming because the operation didn't work and they're all deformed. And so they're all, you know, and stuff. They're ugly. And, uh, and so everybody in that world is ugly and she's, you know, from our point of view, beautiful. And so she has to go to some beautiful colony with beautiful people, you know, because some outcast society. She's, you know, and stuff. And it's, it's you know, Rod Serling's way of saying that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And so, uh, you know, we think, oh, that's weird. Why would God make a being with four faces? Well, they're terrible and beautiful at the same time. And uh, I, I think we'll believe that. And I, I, we probably look weird. I imagine they get together and say, how do you get along with one face? And what's with, and it's apparently they have straight legs with no knees. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, uh, how do you get around on something like that? You know, but they, so, you know, it's all in the eyes of the beholder. Now, there are all manner of suggestions as to what their faces and other parts represent. These cherubim have a special relationship, I believe, to the covenant God made with Noah. We've already seen, or we will see, I've told you that there's going to be a rainbow later in the chapter. The rainbow always reminds you of God's promises to who? To Noah. Okay? And so as part of those promises, we read in Genesis 9, 9 and 10, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beasts of the earth, with you, all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. And so God established his covenant, he said, with four groups, 
He said, with you, Noah, meaning the human race, with birds, with cattle, and with every beast. And so they roughly correspond to the faces of the cherubim. There's something else about the description of the cherubim. In the book of Numbers, God told the nation of Israel how they were to set up camp around the tabernacle in the wilderness and where to set up their tribal flags. I like it. They had flags. Uh, they, they probably had embroidered T-shirts, too. But anyway, uh, they, they had these flags that they set up. And each of the four sides were to be encamped by three tribes. So there were three tribes camped around the tabernacle of the Lord. The tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were to camp on the east and were collectively called the camp of Judah. The symbol on the flag of Judah was a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin were to camp on the west side and they were collectively called Ephraim. The symbol on their flag was an ox. The tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were camped on the south side and were collectively called Reuben. Their symbol was a man. The remaining tribes of Dan, Naphtali, and Asher camped on the north and were collectively called Dan, and their flag had on it an eagle. And so these same beasts that are uh, the faces of the cherubim. And so Israel camped around the tabernacle as an earthly representation of the cherubim surrounding God's throne in heaven. God was enthroned on the earth as he was in heaven. His people were to live in such a way as to bring him never-ending praise. Now, if you want even more about the cherubim, you can go back and get our study on Revelation chapter 4, verse 7. We talk about this and some other uh, ideas about the cherubim uh, who are around God's throne. Uh, verse 9, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 9, Their wings touched one another, the creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, the each, uh, excuse me, each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. Now we're going to talk more about their movements in the next set of verses when we see them associated with the wheels within the wheel. For now, I find it fascinating that their wings touched one another. Because if you were a 6th century Jew, as I already indicated, you would immediately be reminded of the mercy seat covering the ark. I think it was Dr. J. Vernon McGee who suggested in his commentary that this vision was showing the Jews that the entire earth was now a mercy seat covered by the Lord's grace to forgive sin because of the blood that Jesus would shed. And so what a Jew would get out of this, they would say, wait a minute, in, our, in the very heart of the Holy of Holies, there's the mercy seat where we meet with God in that little tabernacle, that little place, and now we're seeing this vision of these tremendous heavenly beings, their wings touching over the entire earth, and, and they would get the understanding that, that God was merciful to them and that He was wanting to forgive them and extend His grace to them. Each one went straight, verse 12, forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted them to go, and they did not turn when they went. Now, if you have four faces and no knees, I guess you're always going forward, no matter which direction you're going. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to visualize some of this, really, uh, but it communicates the thought that though they might change direction, it's not because God changed. 
They're always only carrying out his perfect plan. Uh, you know, so you, no, no knees. You're just always going this way, then you're going that way. But you didn't really change direction because you got a face over here. You know, and, and so the idea is that wherever they go, they're going by divine decree and, and, and there's no real change. They're only carrying out the will of God. And it says they're at the total control of God's spirit. No independent movement or change of plans by their own discretion. How I wish I could be thus led by the Spirit. Isn't that the desire in your heart as a Christian uh, to, to have it said of you that you just went where the Spirit sent you and, and only were led by the Holy Spirit? How tremendous that is. Uh, it's obviously, you know, uh, the potential as we are filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, but we always are finding ourselves fighting the flesh. Now, as we will see as we get into the next layers of this vision, God is over creation. He is moving in the direction He has determined. He has mighty living creatures who carry out His perfect will perfectly. Whatever else you get from this, you must understand God is in control. Verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. So Ezekiel gets into more detail. The storm he saw at first was really these four living creatures hurrying along, performing the will of God. And then in verse 14, And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Ezekiel likened the movement of these amazing living creatures carrying out the will of God to a lightning storm. There was power, but also precision. They struck, as it were, precisely where and when God determined. We talk about the storms of life. They're terrible. Diseases and dilemmas, deaths, the like. If only we could see into the storm. If only we could see the full providence of God in the storm. The full power of God being revealed through them. Well, we can see by faith if we so choose to do so. Every storm in your life has God within it, God over it, taking you through it. This vision will broaden until we see God riding His chariot upon the storm and we'll see that this personage this, that we call God is none other than an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 104, verse 3, we read, He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks on the wings of the wind. I, I just throw that in because uh, it's, and it's amazing to me. The more you study God's Word, the more you see that it is all interconnected. Uh, there are references to these cherubim uh, in various portions of Scripture, so you're not confused as to who they are and to what they're doing. Uh, when you get into this idea, you know, think, well, what is this storm and what does Ezekiel see? It has to line up and correspond with other areas of Scripture. How do we know that it's the Lord, you know, in the storm? Well, the psalmist says that that's what God does. He makes the clouds His chariot. If you could see what, you know, the heavens open the way Ezekiel saw the heavens open, you would see the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, on this heavenly chariot, walking on the wings of the wind. God rules over all. Even as the nations gathered for war in Ezekiel's time, God was overruling events to accomplish His eternal purposes. The kingdoms of this world continue to rise and to fall, but God is above them all. A great word, by the way, for the day and age in which we live, is it not? 
lots of crises, lots of concern, lots of care uh, about, among people. What's happening in the world? Are we headed towards globalization? What's going on with the United States? Lots of criticism. Uh, what's happening? People are losing their money, losing their fortunes, unable to retire, uh, you know, losing jobs, shutting down industries. I mean, it's a, it's, you know, uh, it's a relative catastrophe. And, and people are worried and concerned. You know what? God is, is riding above that storm. Uh, it, it, it's, it, you know, if you could see into it the way that Ezekiel saw it, you know, Ezekiel, it didn't change Ezekiel's situation. I mean, he was, they, they were captive. I mean, they were there. He was by the river Kibar, and the people thought, oh, we'll be back at the temple in no time. And he says, oh, no, you won't. Uh, wait until later in my book when I'm laying on my side playing with a model of uh, Jerusalem being sieged. You know, then you're going to find out what this is all about. Uh, but but you know, just to have that breakthrough. And, and if nothing else, tonight and as we study Ezekiel, just that we would have that personal heart breakthrough of, wow, I, I do see by faith that God is in control of these things. God is over these things. doesn't mean we may not uh, have hard times or that we may not even suffer. It just means that God is in control. God is above it all. Look up, your redemption draws near. Amen? Amen.